One more. Good morning. There we go. Hey, welcome. If you're new with us, I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Impact Christian Church, and I um, hope you have a wonderful uh, uh, Labor Day weekend. Hope you're going to enjoy some time off tomorrow. But as we begin this morning, let me ask you a question, and that is this. What is your support system when life gets hard? Assuming that it does for all of us at some point, when life gets hard, where do you go when you feel like things are falling apart? Where do you find your hope? Some people would say something like, well, my hope is in my family, or my hope is in my friends, or my hope is in my business, or some combination of these. Well, if that's you, can I suggest that you need a better answer? Because that is really not the right way to look at things, because your business will eventually uh, fail, or, or at least will fail to fulfill you. Your friends will eventually disappoint you. Your family's all going to die. We all do someday. So you need to have, you better have something stronger, something more solid to sustain you through the difficult times in life that we all face, and it needs to be something that this world cannot offer. Today, we're beginning a new series of messages from the book of 1 Peter, a verse-by-verse look at that book. In fact, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up. Turn to the book of 1 Peter. You'll find it toward the end of the big book, uh, toward the back there. You'll figure it out where it's at. But as you look at that, I want you to see that the Apostle Peter begins by talking about our ultimate hope and how it is in Christ. Here's how he begins. Verse 1 of chapter 1, 1 Peter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, identifying himself, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And let's pause there. You see, Peter begins by addressing the readers of this letter as exiles. You see that word? Exiles, or some translations might say strangers, or foreigners, or outsiders, or even aliens. It can be uh, used in different ways. But this world was not their home anymore, and that's what Peter's trying to really emphasized to the readers of his, of his letter. They were citizens of another world. And understanding what he means by that brings incredible hope no matter what you're facing in this world. The Bible talks about this concept in numerous other places as well. For example, in Philippians chapter 3, God says through Paul, but our citizenship is in heaven. I am proud to be an American. Is anybody else thankful to be an American? I am I'm thrilled and proud to be an American, but I am first a Christian. I am, first of all, foremost, a citizen of heaven, not of this world. The fact that I'm an American is a wonderful thing, but I am, first of all, uh, of another kingdom, another world. In Hebrews chapter 11, God talks about the heroes of the faith. Beautiful uh, chapter all about that, and he says this in verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were, and notice, here's the word, they were foreigners, strangers on earth. You know, the Greek word here is in this first verse of the book of First Peter can be translated a number of different ways, but, but literally it refers to those living temporarily in a foreign land. Notice this, I love this, it does not reflect or refer to people unrecognizable to their neighbors. God does not want us as Christians to be in stealth mode. That's the point of that. I think we need to understand it also does not mean that these people live in these locations against their will. We are, we are voluntary 
resident aliens. That's who we really are to be on this earth. So we're calling this series Aliens um, because I like sci-fi stuff. I don't know if any of the rest of you do, but really because that's who we are. The Bible teaches that we, as we mature in Christ, are to see ourselves as foreigners or aliens or strangers, outsiders, but people just passing through. Don't, don't put down roots too deep in this world because this is not our real true home. And we have a reason for hope. Even though we may face a lot of discouraging or difficult things in this world, we have a reason to hope when we know or when we think about who our, what our real home really is and who we really are in Christ. Peter also says here in this beginning, first verse, he says, he's writing to those who were scattered. Scattered is an interesting thought. You see, the persecution that had broken out was an interesting thing. It had broken out against the church. Many Christians were being persecuted in a horrible way. They were harassed, arrested, tortured, even beheaded in some cases for their faith. And this led many Christians to flee Jerusalem and find safety elsewhere. And in so doing, the gospel was being spread. I think it's so cool how God often takes bad situations and turns them into good, uses them for good, brings good out of them. We'll see that more in a little bit, but I love how he does that. And that's what happened here as they were being scattered. But life for the early Christians was rough. And so Peter writes to them to remind them of their ultimate hope, a hope beyond anything this world can ever promise us or give us, so that they would not be discouraged. And I think hope is the theme not only of this chapter, but it needs to be what we're going to focus on throughout this entire series. And hope is what I want us to find as we dig into God's Word this morning, because I know there are many here who are battling discouragement. In one way or another, you're struggling I know some of your stories, others of you, I, of course, don't, but I know there are many who are struggling with some kind of a physical issue. Maybe it's the word cancer. Maybe it's some other kind of physical struggle, but, but there are things happening in this physical world and in your physical body that is threatening to steal your hope and is really heavy. Others of you are dealing with extreme financial struggle, and maybe you're looking at all of that and just going, I don't know how in the world we're ever going to um, see daylight again in this. I mean, it's just really overwhelming to you. Others of you are going through some really severe family stuff. Maybe there's extreme conflict between you and somebody else in your family, your spouse, a child, a parent. Others of you are dealing with broken hearts because someone you love dearly has died and you're struggling to know how to move forward. Frankly, I battle discouragement quite a bit as well. I probably shouldn't because God has been so good to me. But there are times where I get down for one of a number of different reasons. Sometimes it's because of the moral slide that I see happening in our country. It bothers me. It frustrates me. It gets me down when I look around and see so many people in the church as well as our world, but even the church struggling. And I mean the church universal for one, but also even local, you know, here at Impact, our church family. When people get upset with one another and leave, or, or maybe get mad at the pastor or somebody else, and things like that, or, or, or when they just maybe fall off the wagon. You know, they, they've grown and matured, it, it appears, and yet then all of a sudden something happens, and boom, they struggle. And, and that, that gets discouraging. It leads me at times to wonder, is God really working through me? Am I really where I should be? Is God really using me in any way to help? But most of all, I get discouraged when I just look at myself. I look in the mirror. You know, I, 
I relate to what Paul said in Romans 7 when he said, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I can. There are times when I look in the mirror and I just think, oh, what is my problem? And, you know, I struggle. I make mistakes that I thought I was past. So anyway, as as I have been preparing and praying about and looking at this series out of 1 Peter, I think it is a series uh, about hope that is something God wants to speak to all of us through. You and me, all of us alike. It was a message for the people in Peter's day. That's why he wrote it. But it is a message for people today as well. So again, if you have your Bible, if you haven't already done it, open it up. Find 1 Peter. In fact, also, if you can, take out a pencil and uh, grab that little sheet of paper that you hopefully found in your bulletin or your program. And I want to share with you three reasons that we can be hopeful even in our world today that is filled with all kinds of discouraging and frustrating and difficult things. Three reasons to be hopeful even in a world that is difficult. Number one would be this. We are God's people and part of His victorious kingdom. Victorious kingdom, that's the key word. Here's how he continues, verse 2 of our chapter. He says that we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Christ Jesus and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, I think there are two words here that, that in particular bring a lot of hope for the Christian. First is the word chosen. Notice that, maybe even circle that. Chosen. We have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God. Now, what does that mean? A lot of times people get a little bit confused by a lot of this, and I don't have all the answers either. But, but let me ask you this. Do you remember when you were in elementary school and everybody had to line up and you had two captains and they're going to pick teams for the kickball game, you know, that's about to happen? Everybody wants to be chosen, you know, toward the top of the list because, you know, it feels bad. Nobody wants to be the, the last one or, or somebody who's not wanted or not chosen at all. Well, in this way, you have been chosen by the creator of the universe to be part of his kingdom. Now, some think that means that God chooses some to be saved and and others to be lost. I don't personally see that. I don't think that's what it means. I think to be chosen means that you're given the invitation to participate in God's kingdom, but that you still get to choose whether or not you will accept that invitation. It's up to you. It's up to me. In 1983, a strong-armed quarterback out of Stanford University, maybe you've heard of him. Anybody have a guess as to who I'm talking about? John Elway was his name. Maybe you've heard of him. He was the first player chosen or drafted in the 1983 NFL draft. But he made it very clear from the very beginning that while he had been chosen by the Indianapolis Colts, he did not want to play for them. In fact, he made it clear, I would rather play baseball uh, for the Yankees or whoever else than I would play football for you. And so while he had been chosen by them, he rejected that invitation and said, no, no thank you. And If you're a Broncos fan, you know the rest is history. He was later soon traded to the Broncos, and a lot of good things flowed downstream from that. But he was chosen in that way, but rejected the invitation. And in a similar way, I think you and I have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God to receive an invitation to be part of His kingdom, but we still have the opportunity to accept or reject that invitation. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, God says, For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. 
that he, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You see, God can see in advance who is going to respond appropriately to his invitation and who is not. But if we do, and if we believe in his son, then he predestines us, I think, according to his word, to grow and mature and be conformed into the image of his son. You see, there's a big difference between predestination and foreknowledge. Predestination is to cause something to happen, whereas foreknowledge is simply to see it in advance based on superior wisdom, to know what's going to happen. Now, this whole context can lead to some very deep conversations. We're just scratching the surface, and, and there are a lot of people that, that enjoy talking through that and even debating that, but I don't think it's a place to argue. I don't think it's a place to get too bent out of shape. Even though not everyone agrees about it, I don't understand it all. But I'll just tell you, this is the way I look at it. Now, I will also tell you this. If you happen to have it all figured out, I mean, if you know every detail about predestination and foreknowledge and have it all sorted out in your head, then congratulations, because you're the first theologian in 2,000 years to have it all nailed down. But I'm not you in that respect. And personally, I just find it more productive to focus on things that I think are more productive or, or um, uh, personal in terms of the way we live life. You know, how we treat our spouse how we parent our child, how we love our neighbor, how we spend time alone with the Lord. I think the day-to-day life decisions that we make is more what we need to focus on than the things like this, that there are different ways to look at it. But bottom line, it's it's reassuring to know that we have been chosen by an omnipotent God to participate in His kingdom. Amen? Isn't that exciting? We've been chosen by Him. Now, the second key word in this beginning of the chapter is the word sanctified, a big word that a lot of people are like, what does that even mean? Well, it says we are sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to Jesus. And the simple answer as to what that means is sanctification just means to be set aside for a godly purpose. And that is what you and I have been. We have been sanctified or set aside for godly purposes. You may not know exactly what that looks like or how it's going to all play out, But God has great plans for you. He promises He has plans to prosper you and to not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, to quote from Jeremiah. And knowing all of that gives us hope. But again, the other key is that knowing all of this, in the end, we know that we are going to be victorious. We are on the winning team, and that's what matters most. Now, we may not know how it's all going to play out in the end, but we know the important part, and that is that in the end, We win because we're on God's team, and that's something to be excited about. Amen? There's great hope in knowing that, comfort in knowing that. Do you happen to remember when the Israelites were trapped against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his army were chasing them down because Pharaoh had changed his mind? He let them go, and then he said, oh, wait a minute, what have I done? And he jumps in the chariot with all of his army, and he chases them down, and the Israelites see the dust as the army is approaching them, and they see the water's edge, and they're trapped, and they are scared to death, and And God basically says, don't panic, trust me. If you know the story, well, that evening, God caused a great wind to blow all night and part the Red Sea so that they could walk through it on dry land. And you know that as they waited and then as they got to cross the sea, that that Pharaoh and his army began to follow through and chase them, to chase them down and retrieve them, take them back to Egypt and, and all that. And yet God caused all that great wall of water to fall down upon them and that cascading water drowned them, and, and all God's people had peace and hope and courage given to them, and, and, uh, and their faith grew. Well, 
do you know, think about it, God could have, if he wanted to, he could have parted the Red Sea two days earlier in advance so that when, the, when his people got to the edge of the water, they could just immediately walk on across and not feel so, so, so squished, you know, so uh, scared with the approaching army. He could have done that. He didn't do that, though. Why is it? Why, why did he not? Well, I would tell you it's because he wanted their faith to grow as well. He wanted to give them opportunity to trust him and to learn that trusting him is a beautiful and healthy thing. Now, the Bible teaches that in the last days, just before Jesus returns a second time, which I believe we are part of the last days now, that uh, the world is going to get worse and worse. People are going to get more and more evil and all sorts of bad things are going to happen. But at the very last moment, at the perfect time, Jesus Christ is going to return and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess and Jesus is going to make all things right. And no matter how strong the dark side may appear to be or, or conversely how inept the church might appear to be, God is going to gain the victory. He's very clear about that. Every knee will bow. And that can also give us incredible hope no matter what we face today. You know, I may be a foreigner, you may be a foreigner or an alien in this world in some way. We may feel out of place at times, longing for our, our true home, maybe even discouraged at times. But I pray and hope that we can all have this hope because of what God has promised us, and that is that we get to be on His winning team, and that at just the right moment, He will make all things right. There is hope in that. Amen? There is great hope in that. Harvard's football team, Harvard is known for a lot of things, but football is not one of them. Harvard's football team has often struggled to win a lot of games, and and I heard an interesting thing that uh, sometimes some of their loyal, faithful people have uh, been known to chant or, or cheer out a certain thing when the score is getting out of control. You know, the other team's racking up touchdown after touchdown, and the point spread is getting ridiculous, and, and they know the game is virtually over, just uh, it hadn't officially ended yet. And so toward the end of one of those kind of games, the Harvard faithful will sometimes be heard to chant this, that's all right, that's okay, you're going to work for us someday. <laughs> there you go. You know, it's all about perspective. And, and if you can maintain perspective, there can be hope and encouragement, even in the middle of difficult or frustrating things. And in the same way, when Satan seems to be gaining the victory, and you look around and you feel discouraged and beat down because of something that's happening or has happened in your life, remember, don't forget, Jesus is at the perfect time, at just the right time, going to come and make all things right, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And there is hope in knowing and believing and trusting in this. I love how God says it in Romans 16 through Paul. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet at the perfect time. I love that. Well, here's another reason to hope. As we see as we continue in First Peter chapter 1, that is that we have been born again, born again and are guaranteed eternal life in heaven. Born again. Here's how he talks about it in verse 3. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now, that's a, there's a lot of rich stuff in there, but let me share with you a few thoughts. First of all, you know, probably most of you know John 3.16. You know that famous, maybe the most famous verse in all the Bible. Well, before that, those words were uttered by Jesus to Nicodemus. Jesus was having a conversation with this man, Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And, and he had told Nicodemus that you have to be born again. And Nicodemus was kind of like, whoa, what does that mean? And he, he said basically, born again, Jesus, how, how, can, how can you enter your mother's womb and be born again? I don't understand. And Jesus said this in John 3, verse 5. Very truly, I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Friends, when you are born physically in this world, you inherit the sin nature of Adam. We all do. And you will disobey God as surely as a newborn baby will cry. We know that to be. Flesh gives birth to flesh. And unless you are born again spiritually, you have no hope for heaven. You, you hear people talk all the time about born-again Christians. To me, actually, I think that's kind of a redundant phrase. I mean, if you are born again, you are a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are born again. Or, and if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. I, I don't think you have to add all that up together. So the important question becomes, how are you born again? And what does that really look like? A lot of people get confused by this. There have been a lot of misuses and and uh, uh, times where, where this concept or phrase is used in a way that confuses people, and they're like, what in the world does that mean, born again? That sounds weird. Well, in the second half of First Peter chapter 1, which we'll look at next week, um, but let me just show you, skip ahead for just a moment to verse 23, because he talks about this. Peter says, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. I think the first step of being born again according to His Word is to hear the Word of God and believe in it, to receive it into your soul and believe it and respond to it. We respond to His Holy Word by believing that Jesus is who He said He is, that He is the Son of God and that He did come to this world and live and die and then rise from the grave and that He is coming back again someday. We, we need to believe that and respond to that by repenting of our sin and confessing Him as our Lord and Savior and, and being baptized into Him as we talked about and we saw happen last week with two different people. You know, when the seed of a husband, think about it, when the seed of a husband is received into the womb of the wife, new life begins. It is a miracle, a beautiful miracle. And nine months later, the mother's water bursts and a new baby is born. It's an incredible miracle, but that is perishable seed. But when the imperishable seed of God, as we're looking at here, through His enduring Word is received, you are born again in a whole new way. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that, that in that scenario, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You are a whole new creature, a whole new alien, if you will. Now, again, to someone on the outside looking in, they might think this whole concept seems a little bit crazy, but truthfully, it is an incredibly profound and beautiful truth if we understand what God's Word is talking about. Now, just like a human birth, this kind of thing can be a process. It can take time, but as you start to let the Word of God change you, as you listen to it and receive it and allow it to, to, to affect the way you live life, the decisions you make, left or right, here or there, in different parts of life, 
it begins to take shape and take root in your life, and it brings more life and joy and hope, there's our word for the day, than anything this whole world can offer. I like how God talks about it in Titus chapter 3 when he said, He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done. I mean, none of us can do enough to earn salvation, not at all. But he saves us because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. There's that concept of being reborn. Of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Isn't that incredible? That's why Dr. Buford Bryant used to say the baptistry is a tomb and a womb, a tomb that we die to ourselves in, but a womb in which we come to new life through the grace and love of Jesus. Love that. And when we are reborn, we have a new hope, a living hope, an enduring hope, which is all about Jesus. All other hope is temporary. That's why I try to say if your hope is in any of these things that come on this earth, you're setting yourself up for struggle because all things on this earth are temporary. Even those that we love, our families, it's all temporary. Our hope, though in Jesus, is eternal. It is never-ending. It is, as he says in verse 4 of our text, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Never is a long, long time. It's a hope that endures even though, even though your family may fall apart even though your business may fail, even though children rebel, even though your body might grow old and fall apart, even though others may abandon or forsake you. It is a hope that never perishes, spoils, or fade, or fades. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, he says. I love that. It's kept for you. It's reserved for you. How many of you went on a trip somewhere this summer, you got in the car and you drove somewhere on a you know, vacation day or weekend or week or whatever, so you drove somewhere in the car. A lot of you did that. Um, if you did that, my guess would be that as you went, unless you had family waiting for you, you probably called ahead and you talked to somebody in a hotel and you gave them a credit card number, they gave you a confirmation number, and then you wrote that down, and then you drove, and as you drove by lots of other places, and you maybe saw no vacancy signs, and, and you saw some stretches of highway where there was no place to stay, you weren't worried. You didn't have anything to worry about because you knew that your spot was reserved, that it was being kept for you. And in the same way, we don't have to worry about what comes on the other side of death because there is a room being kept for us. This inheritance, Peter says, is kept in heaven for you. As we talked last week, Jesus said in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house are many rooms. There's a room for you. There's a room for me. He's going, he went to go and prepare a place for us, and when it's ready, he said he would come and take us to be with him. We have great hope. Because of that, it is a room that has been kept for us, reserved for us. It's been paid for in advance by the blood of Jesus. And whether you check in at age 8 or 108 or anywhere in between, your inheritance is reserved. It is kept for you. And there is great, incredible hope in knowing that. This inheritance, he says, is kept in heaven for you. And then verse 5 says, who through faith are shielded. Now, remember that word, shielded by God's power 
until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. But the third way that we can find hope even in a discouraging world is this. If you're writing down, filling in the blanks, here you go. We have purpose, purpose in suffering and are thankful that it is temporary. Purpose in suffering and thankful that it is temporary. Verse 6 continues, Peter says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Rich text here. Verse 5 again, though, says that we are shielded by God's power. Kind of like a windshield on a motorcycle that keeps most of the bugs and wind and rain off of you. You know, I would say this. If, if God did not protect us or put His shield of protection around us or His hedge of protection around us, who knows how bad this world would get if Satan were unleashed to do all that he wanted to do. His purpose on earth is, as, as God's Word tells us, to steal, kill, and destroy. And yet God holds him back and restrains him. The Bible teaches this many different places. And yet that does not mean that he wraps us in Christian bubble wrap, if you will, and protects us from every bad thing, every cold or sniffle or even even other more difficult things that come our way. God does sometimes allow limited suffering because of a purpose. We live in a fallen world, a world that is a long way from perfect because of the endless effects of sin. Well, they're not really endless, but the effects of sin and evil that we have to deal with here until we get to heaven. And so for a little while, Peter says, a little while, which, by the way, even if you live to 120, your life is still just a little while in comparison to eternity. But he says, for a little while, you may have to suffer in certain respects. I preached about this before and will again in the future, in fact, in just a few weeks when we get to chapter 4 of this book. But while I don't think any of us are ever going to walk up to God and say, oh, dear Lord, because I understand this so well and I recognize that I grow most during difficult times, Lord, would you please send me some more really, really hard stuff? That's what I really want because I know that I grow most during those moments, so therefore bring it on. I want more. I don't think any of us will probably ever do that. I, I never have, probably never will. But still, as we look in the rearview mirror of our lives, if you're like me, we can see that it is during the difficult times that we have the most opportunity for growth. I've seen this over and over in my own life. I've seen it over and over in the lives of countless others that I have spent time with as their pastor or friend. I'm confident of this, and I find hope as I ponder and think about all of this. But that doesn't mean that I understand all that there is to understand about suffering or the difficulties that come our way. But I know that God can and does use these things for good. He used Job's suffering in many great ways. There's a whole book about Job's whole life and story. and might be a good one to read through. And it doesn't necessarily mean you'll understand it all, but there's power in, in that book of Scripture. I know that the Apostle Paul said that he was given a thorn in the flesh, We don't even know exactly what that was, but he was giving some kind of thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited. God was using that thorn in the flesh in a good way. I look at my own mom's life, who died at a young age of 44 of a brain tumor, and I see several miracles, true miracles that God did in her life or in the lives of others around her through that situation. 
You see, God allows pain that He deems productive or useful for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's to simply strengthen us, like a muscle that you have to beat up or or tear down so that it can grow stronger again. Or maybe it's to help us learn how to comfort others. There is so much good in that. Or maybe it's to force us to rely on Him more or to appreciate the sufferings of Christ more fully, to really grasp what it means that Jesus would die for us. Or maybe it's to just simply get our focus off of this world and onto Him. But any of these or all of these can be a reason that God allows suffering, and we need to trust Him in the middle of it. We can have hope even when we hurt because we know it is temporary and because we know that there is meaning behind it. You know, a mother in childbirth can endure a lot. You ladies who have been down that road have endured so much. And moms can do that because they know the end result and because they know the pain will not last long. And I know I'm talking to some hurting people right now who are really struggling and discouraged. I just want to say, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't quit trusting. Continue to trust that even though you don't understand God, you can trust God. Even when you don't understand how or why or what is happening in the world around you or in your own body or your own story or situation, God can and will work through that for your good. He promises to do so in Romans chapter 8. You know, in this passage, Peter explains how suffering can be like a furnace used to heat gold and burn off impurities. The purifying fire is hot. It's, it's painful. Nobody's denying that. But in the end, it makes us more valuable and stronger, just like that furnace does to gold. I heard a story about a nurse who, when she was just getting started in nursing school, almost quit. She was working in the burn unit of a children's hospital and was given the task of scrubbing with a brush the badly burned arms of an 18-month-old child who was screaming in pain. She said it was not a soft sponge either. It was more like a Brillo pad. It had to be used to scrape all that dead skin and tissue away from this horribly burned arm and, you know, all that so that eventually the skin could heal properly. She talked about how she just couldn't hardly do it, and she wanted to quit so badly, feeling that it was just wrong to inflict pain on this poor child who was already in so much pain. But then a doctor showed her a picture of another burn victim who was now an adult, whose skin was so scarred and stiff, the arm had shriveled up and was almost useless. And this young, soon-to-be nurse learned that no matter how painful the scrubbing process had to be, it was essential for the skin to heal for that skin to become supple again and useful again so that the child could someday use the arm again. So with tears in her eyes, she was willing to inflict inflict that pain on that child temporarily, enduring even the hateful protest by an angry, hurting child so that someday the child would be healthy again and hopefully even thankful You know, our Heavenly Father, the great physician, sometimes allows us to face excruciating pain. And I don't have all the answers for that, but I know that He only does so when it's necessary for spiritual health and for eternal benefit. 
And I don't know this, but I think that our loving God cringes when we go through pain. I really do. Verse 6 says, In all this you rejoice, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to uh, had to suffer gr- uh, grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, or you could say hope, for you are receiving the end result, like the mother and childbirth, end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, as we close this first half of this first chapter, first Peter, here's how he finishes in the last couple of verses here. Chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels, I love this sentence, even angels long to look into these things. There is so much we don't understand, including the role of suffering in certain settings in our life. But you know what? Scripture teaches us right here that even the prophets, even the angels did not understand everything that could be understood. I think when God had Gabriel go and tell Mary that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, I don't think Gabriel had any clue that that meant the Messiah was someday going to have to die. I don't think Gabriel had any idea. I think when Jesus was hanging on the cross and being brutalized by those soldiers, I think there were 10,000 angels who began to pull out their their sword, and and get ready to do battle because they didn't understand what was happening. They didn't know what was about to go down. And if not for God's perfect plan and, and the restraint that He put on them, that whole scene, that whole day would have gone a whole lot differently. Now, if the heavenly angels don't always understand what is happening to the last moment, neither did Satan, a fallen angel, I think when Jesus died on the cross, Satan thought he had actually won the victory. I think he thought that. It was not until Jesus was raised from the dead that Satan finally realized once and for all that he truly was eternally going to be defeated. Look at what Revelation tells us, uh, a a book about the foreshadowing of what is to come in the end times. Uh, John tells us, or God tells us through John here, says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. He didn't always know his time is short, but he does now. And what was hidden from the prophets, and hidden from the angels, even hidden from Satan himself, has been revealed to you and me. We know why Christ had to die. We know what Isaiah meant when he said in chapter 53 that he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and that by his wounds we are healed. We understand what that meant, but I don't think Isaiah knew when he wrote it. 
Here's the point. If the moment that appeared to be the most hopeless for Jesus was actually his finest hour, his true glory, if that was the real bottom line, even though most, virtually everyone did not understand it, should we not also as Christ followers trust and retain hope in our darkest, most difficult times, believing that our suffering may end up actually being what God does his very best work through, just as it was in the life of Jesus. We're going to close by singing a new song. I'd like to ask you to stand with me. We sang it last week for the first time. If you were here, you heard it. Maybe you've heard it before, but maybe it's new to you. But I love it. It moves my heart. It touches me deeply because it's just simply about acknowledging, singing about that even when life is hard, even when things are difficult, even when suffering comes our way, God is good. He is so good to you and to me. And we can worship Him and believe that and trust Him because we know that He is who He says He is and that He keeps all of His promises. Would you sing it with me and worship Him together with me? Let's do it together.